It took me a while to find the word equivalent of my feelings. It's hard to find one word that would describe the frightening chest tightening, the shortness of breath, and the constant fear of losing everything at once. But I think the image has come to my mind, and I think it works well. I think the way that I feel is the same as being in water 40 feet deep, and it's black, and something just below the surface is invisible, and it's terrifying because I am in it, and I am cold. I'm floating, but I will only remain afloat so long as I can keep one body part above the surface and my God, my lips are just barely breaking it. The pressure is so strong below and my chest is constricted and constricted and it hurts. And sometimes the liquid salt will splash in my mouth and I think this is it. I am no more. But my foot catches something beneath and I prop myself up just a little bit more. Hello and welcome to the Radio DePaul podcast. My name is Doug Klain, and what you just heard was a poem written and performed by Natalie Shamo about anxiety. Some of you might have already been able to tell, but what she was describing was a panic attack. We liked this piece because it takes a very difficult-to-see thing that, you know, by and large happens inside a person's head and brings on this sensational, almost supernatural image to help you understand what, well, for many, is a constant worry. Well, this week on our program, Just in Time for Halloween, we have episode 39, What Keeps You Up at Night. We're going to be looking at stories about people with things that just keep on nagging at them. A feeling or a worry or an excitement. Something that just stays with a person. Whether it's finally getting a chance to come out to play after waiting all year, or students crying out in desperation that there has to be a better way to do things. First up, we've got a story from producer Joe D'Amico. This is Act 1. You're going to need a bigger theater. For this first story in What Keeps You Up at Night, we don't look at something that goes bump in the night. We look at Professor Jeff Burnham, a, a teacher here at, at DePaul University who teaches cult cinema and ethics and mass communication. Someone who really has a passion for horror movies and what keeps him up at night isn't the characters in these movies that could possibly startle him or the fact that whoever is running for president is running for president. Instead, it's his anticipation all year for the month of October, a month where people who are a part of the cult horror audience in Chicago are allowed to spread their wings figuratively and take off with 24-hour movie marathons constantly with the fact that they can dress up as some of their favorite characters without maybe backlash for the rest of the year. Truly, October is the cult horror month to celebrate. And who else better explain the cult horror audience and what it is like for one of their members in this month than Professor Jeff Burnham, cult member himself. The horror movies that I am most drawn to are movies that have some sort of resonance beyond just being scary. I mean, I appreciate a really good scary movie because that's not something you find a lot. You know, I think something like a werewolf or whatever, it's so far-fetched and so unrealistic that to be scared by that other than jump scares is unusual. You know, I appreciate a really deeply thematic horror movie. You know, something that speaks to sort of the 
political problems we might be having, which goes back to the history of horror films. If you look at the 1970s, 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, right? Vietnam War era. A lot of those films, especially like the early works of Wes Craven, you know, address the horrors of the time, you know, that we're seeing on the news, people dying and being shot in the streets. So let's make movies that help people cope with that. You know, and I've always found horror movies to be a really important source of catharsis. You know, and I think that's how most of us use horror movies is as catharsis. Even if it doesn't scare us per se, it helps us get something out that, you know, that we need to purge. Get rid of these feelings. If you're upset about the state of your life right now, if, you know, your best friend got sent off to war and killed, you know, if you're worried yourself about what's going to happen in your life because things aren't stable around you, you have to have a way to get that out. You have to have a way to purge those emotions, and you can find that in horror. You can have it literally scared out of you in many ways. October is my busiest time of the year every single year, and it never fails. I always swear that I'm going to take on less classes, that I'm going to take on fewer projects, but it never fails. It's, it's always a lot. Annually, I attend the massacre, which was held at the Patio Theater this year, and also annually host a horror movie marathon at my apartment called Cadavercade, which is typically 14 hours long, and we also program all year long. It's an all year round programming thing because we have specific rules that we abide by in our programming. The rules of Cadavercade are fairly simple. One, either... So the movie has to either not have been seen by the core group of five of us who do this. Other people attend as well. Either the five of us have to have not seen it, or it has to be a new transfer of the movie that none of us have seen, like a new Blu-ray or something like that, or, or a rare VHS or something that we can, you know, dig out. And I also program at least one movie that I don't tell anybody about, except for my wife, and that is generally something as weird and unpredictable as humanly possible. That's Cadavercade, and, and that between that and then the 24-hour massacre, that's two weekends out of October completely gone. And when you consider my group of friends and how active they are, that actually puts me on kind of the low end of event attendance. I have a number of friends who attend a 24-hour marathon every single weekend of the month of October, or go to like week-long, half-week-long, uh, festivals that they fly out for. It's a strange thing to be part of the horror movie cult in Chicago because you don't, I guess, think about it for the whole year. You know, it's not like something that you're, you know, constantly aware of. Like, I'm part of the cult horror community, right? And I help. Um, operate the massacre now. It's something that I work on, um, you know, helping with volunteers, helping, uh, you know, just basic operations of the event. It's something that I work very closely with them on. And so it's just sort of a thing that happens once a year. And 
to some people, I guess to outsiders, it might seem like, hey, these people who love horror movies, they get a whole month. Like, how's how's that fair or something? But, you know, I guess from the cult audience perspective in this case, it's just the thing we wait for. You know, it's you just you're you're spending the rest of the year biding your time until Halloween rolls around. And I know that's true of myself for sure. You know, that I I program Cadavercade for the entire year. I know the I know the first movie for next year, as a matter of fact. And this year is we knew the first movie for two years earlier. So it's something we're always thinking about, just what are we going to do in October? When you look at Christmas, people like get excited about Christmas. They're excited for I don't know, two months. Let's say two months. And let's say they're ignoring Thanksgiving or whatever. It's maybe two months that they're really in the buildup. When you are at least in Chicago and amongst the people I know, there is no, oh, it's almost here kind of buildup. You don't get, you know, beginning, like in beginning of December, you start getting Christmas party invites, right? We're talking about this the year before. Like, it's a full 12 months that we're waiting on this, right? We know movies that we're going to program the next October during the current October. We're already talking about that. It doesn't end. I, I don't. There's no better way to put it except for, you know, it, by comparison, Christmas is that season, you know, that is the, kind of those two months. And I'm not going to say that Halloween isn't a season like that, but for people who, you know, would tell you that they prefer Halloween over Christmas or that it is the best time of the year for them, we tend to focus on it nonstop. I would say that my entire year is spent getting my life in order in preparation for trying to watch 62 horror movies. So I guess the the difference is that unlike other people, the way that other people view holidays, this is less of a like this happens one year and more of an intensification of what is always there, of what's always happening. To celebrate the month of October as a cult horror movie fan is to embrace a lot of seemingly incompatible notions and lifestyles and preferences, right? It's it's a celebration that is also rooted heavily in death because that's what horror movies feature. And yet it is at the same time the time of year when a cult horror fan no doubt feels more alive and more at home than they do throughout the rest of the year. You know, so it's in some ways incongruous with how our society seems to feel about death. It's this thing we don't talk about that we don't acknowledge. But for a subset of the American populace, it is a time of year when right, we can take ourselves to the extremes of the human condition. You know, it's uh, for most people, they get to Christmas time, and this is the one time of year that maybe they allow themselves to love. But Everybody else, for the rest of us, at Halloween, it's the one time of year that 
you know, we we find solace in surrounding ourselves with the unusual, the unexpected. That we that those of us who, you know, put on our cardigans and go to work every day, that we can, you know, sit down in front of a TV and just let the bizarre and obscene and excessive wash over us in a way that you maybe don't get to the rest of the year when it doesn't when it's not as societally acceptable as it is in the month of October because it's the one time that you can say hey this is this is a thing that I can do now with the rest of society is the rest of the year you know the people are working celebrating their holidays of love and togetherness and for us we find that love and togetherness amidst an onslaught of on-screen death it's weird and it's counterintuitive for a lot of people i imagine but you know a lot of other nations celebrate death have their own holidays for it so it's not that different what cult horror fans do than what you might find in holidays of mexico or japan producer here at Radio DePaul. Next up, we've got a story from Sarah Breedlove. Act 2, That Itch You Can't Scratch. It's that time of year again, where things go bump in the night, untold horrors hide in the dark, and even the slightest movement outside your window can keep you petrified in fear for hours on end, preventing you from sleep. But what about scratching? itching, a relentless urge to pretty much rip your skin off, an itch with such a huge need to be scratched but there seems to be no relief in sight. That would keep you up too, wouldn't it? What I'm talking about is the kind of monster that can attack you any time of year and stick with you for the rest of your life if you're not careful enough. That's right, STIs, and a warning for the faint of heart. This story acknowledges the existence of sex, and that college kids, well, they're having it. There are two ways to prevent STIs. One simple one is just to not have sex. However, in this new age of self-confidence and a lesser stigma on premarital sex, lots of people don't prefer this, which is fair. That's why there's another option. Contraceptives. Contraceptives come in many forms, which include, but are not limited to, implants, patches, pills, shots, sponges, vaginal rings, IUDs, a morning after pill, and condoms, both male and female. With this surplus of options, it's difficult to think that people at T'Pol would be unsafe in regards to sexual health. But Trojan, you know, the condom company? releases a sexual health report card every year that ranks 140 colleges based on the quality of sexual health services each school has. This year, DePaul dropped from a hearty 107th place down to 125th place. 
Although this ranking is definitely better than 2011, where DePaul was in dead last, it's still an alarming drop. All this begs the question, why is DePaul's sexual health services rank so badly? Well, Trojan judges colleges based off a number of things, like the hours of operation of the health center, sexual assault programs, resources, and services, outreach programs, the quality of sexual health information on their website, the website's functionality, STD and HIV testing availability, and if contraceptives or condoms are available to students, either for free or purchase, on campus. Well, DePaul is a Catholic institution, despite the fact that they keep saying, we're Vincentian, we're Vincentian. That's a branch of the Catholic institution, and Catholics do not believe in contraceptives. That's Adair Tischler, a junior here and the co-president of the Roosevelt Institute chapter here at DePaul. For those of you who don't know what the Roosevelt Institute is, they are a policy writing group that is the brainchild of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidential library, which has three parts. The first is a think tank that operates out of New York. The second is the actual library. And the third group is us, and that is th that's their college chapters, and they just encourage students to write policy about things that are affecting them and to make change in their own communities. Because who writes the rules matters. That's our tagline. She also helped found the idea for the Condom Coalition. So it's not an actual policy, but it is policy change. And it's about how DePaul won't let anyone distribute contraceptives on campus. We're not asking for DePaul to provide us sex heathens with all the condoms we could ask for. We just think that there's some great nonprofits in Chicago that provide condoms of no cost to many, I mean really to anyone, but also to college students. They're on Chicago college campuses giving out free condoms to students and DePaul won't let them on campus because they're distributing condoms. And there have been a couple efforts to try and change this policy over the years from students, but DePaul really hasn't listened, which we at Roosevelt find super disturbing that they're not listening to student voices and student opinions about their own bodies. We just think that, especially when we have a campus where the statistics just show like we have sexually active people it doesn't make sense that you have possibly life-threatening diseases and infections going around. On the other end of the spectrum, you have University of Georgia, which made their way into Trojan's number one spot on its report card. Taking a look at their website, it's easy to see why. They have hyperlink upon hyperlink on information to keep you safe during sex. They even have a whole page dedicated to safe oral sex, which a lot of people tend to gloss over. And to make sexual health even more appealing than it already is, they're hosting Project Condom, which is a one-hour fashion show debuting beautiful pieces of clothing made from condoms. DePaul's sexual health page refers you to various addresses and websites that aren't actually a part of DePaul. They're pointing people in the right direction, but they're not taking the initiative themselves to say, hey, wear a condom. Although, this is pretty much the only place where DePaul actually agrees with the Catholic Church. I mean, if you walk into the student center, you're greeted with a small chapel and a very cute, very lifelike cutout of the Pope. Like, I've waved to it a couple of times thinking it was a real person. And they're both right next to the LGBTQA center. 
for a long time, my sexuality and many people's sexualities also supposedly went against the Catholic mission. And now we're really lucky to go to a school that has LGBTQIA plus minors and all of these great opportunities. They've handled all these other issues so well, it just doesn't make sense as to why they're not doing more in this situation. It's not like anyone is expecting DePaul to become more like the University of Georgia with its encyclopedia on sexual health, but maybe there's a happy medium. Elon University in Elon, North Carolina is somewhere that might be considered more of that happy medium. They aren't listed on the sexual health report card, but they are similar to DePaul in the way that the school itself doesn't really touch on sexual health that much. Unlike DePaul, they allow student-run programs to distribute both information and contraceptives to the campus. If you are coming to a college and you are paying that school to live there and get educated there and be a member of the community, the school has a responsibility to make sure that you are in a place that is comfortable and safe, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, what you're doing. Alex Hager, a student of Elon, was kind enough to share his opinion on how sexual health should be handled. And part of that definitely involves providing those resources um, for sexual health, just because it's, it's something that the people, I don't think, necessarily know where to go at first instinct. And it's up to the school to make sure that those are prominent. I feel like if, if that sort of information comes from students, it's a lot more relatable, it's a lot more believable. And while the school should provide those resources, I think that kind of information is just, is just more valuable to students when it's coming from their peers. Realistically, DePaul isn't just going to suddenly have a change of heart. Changing policy takes a lot of time and effort. But there's no denying that there's a problem here, and something needs to change. Change just happens slowly. It's kind of like trying to eat an elephant. You can only take it one bite at a time. That was Sarah Breedlove, reporter for Radio DePaul. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Radio DePaul podcast, episode 39, What Keeps You Up at Night? This episode was put together by Joe D'Amico, Sarah Breedlove, Natalie Shamo, and myself, Doug Klain. Special thanks to Adair Tischler, Alex Hager, and DePaul professor Jeff Burnham, who is, as a matter of fact, the host of his very own podcast, CadaverCast. It's a great show about, well, what else but horror movies. We also have some exciting news. This show, the Radio DePaul podcast, actually just won the College Media Association's Pinnacle Award this year for Best Podcast. We want to congratulate Derek Peters, Sanjana Karanth, and Matthew Barbusio for running the show last year and achieving this. Those of us working on the show now, well, we love what we do, but I sincerely doubt we'd be here if the trail was not already blazed for us. So way to go, guys. And to those of you listening, we want to thank you for tuning in to the now award-winning Radio DePaul podcast. I'm Doug Klain, and we will see you next week. Happy Halloween.